You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So happy uh, fifth day of Christmas, right? Five golden rings. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I knew of Christmas Day, and I knew of the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, but I didn't know that Christmas Tide was celebrated by many Christians as a season that would start on Christmas Day on the 25th, and it would run through January the 5th, and those were the 12 days of Christmas. So Christmas Day is the first day of Christmas. We've often sung that about the partridge and the pear tree. And then uh, we've made our way now today. Today is day five. Next Sunday will be day 12. Is that right? Yes. Thank you. Math's not my specialty. So next Sunday will be the 12th day of Christmas. And then uh, the day after that is Epiphany. We kind of open up a new season. But we're still at Christmas time our Christmas tide, right? It's the time that we celebrate the coming of the Christ. So throughout the Advent season, each week we were lighting a different candle as we were anticipating, as we were kind of filled with expectation. And then on Christmas Eve, we lit the sinner candle, right? The Christ candle. And now they're all lit because Christ is here. Christ has been born. God is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And that's part of the message that we want to look at today Today's sermon is titled, Joseph the Dreamer. So we're going to look at Jesus' father, the husband of Mary, Joseph. And in today's text, we'll see that he had three dreams. I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent And killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream... He went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He he will be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So these are interesting passages, right? Uh, 
Herod has heard from the wise men that a, a king was born in Bethlehem. And so to try and keep that king or that child from growing to the age that he could kind of take Herod's throne, he decides to try and kill the baby. But the wise men were wise, the Magi, and so they've warned the Holy Family, they've warned Joseph and Mary about this. And so in a dream, Joseph is told, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. So much seems to be tied up in this. Like if we remember where the people of Israel came from, right? There was a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a nation, but Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph, we find ourselves at the end of Genesis with the people of God and captivity in Egypt. They're slaves in the land of Egypt. It was out of Egypt that um, God had called his people. Like the people were a nation because they had escaped from Egypt. Yet here we see Joseph and Mary and Jesus kind of going to Egypt to protect them from the king of Israel, right, Herod the Great. And so he's there, they get there, but Herod is now infuriated by the fact that he's missing out on this chance to kind of wipe out this potential usurper from his perspective. And so he goes and he has all the children or all the boys um, in and around Bethlehem put to death, which is a horrible story, right? This, this type of kind of mass murder that takes place kind of in conjunction with the, the birth of the Christ. Like, how can on one hand things be so good, finally the Christ is here, the child is born, and on the other hand, things be so dark? In one way, this kind of foreshadows the future of the, of the Christ child, Right? The Christ child will grow up and will face death. But that in lies the silver lining. Right? The hope is in that even though this child will die, the Christ child will die, like these children in Bethlehem, the death of the Christ will be the death of death. Like in, in the death of Jesus on the cross, death itself meets its end. And with the resurrection of Jesus, there is new life to be had. There is life beyond death. So, so the children that die um, are, are, are going to be saved in the end because of this child. But b- before we jump to Easter too quickly on this fifth day of Christmas, let's pause just for a minute and realize that life is hard. But things don't always work out. And sometimes life is more than hard. Sometimes life is tragic. Uh, there's a, a painter. His name was uh, Leon Cognier, a uh, Frenchman. And he painted, uh, he's actually known more so as a teacher. He had like over 100 students who became great painters. But he produced this painting and it's called the Massacre of Jerusalem, or excuse me, the, mass, the Massacre of Bethlehem. And as we, as we take a look at this, we can kind of, we see this kind of mother kind of crouched holding her child. And you can see in the background some uh, action. People are kind of running. 
This is a depiction of what Matthew wrote about when it said that Herod had gone to kind of kill the children that are two years and younger in Bethlehem. There are a few things I want you to pay attention in this picture. One is of this mother's feet. Like we'll zoom in here. She doesn't have shoes on, right? The, the, the disaster, the tragedy kind of comes on her kind of unaware. She just runs. She doesn't even take the time to put on her shoes. You, you know, the, there's a certain amount of kind of vulnerability in that. You know, she's, she's hiding. She's trying to protect her child. And then I want us to focus in on her face. Look at the anguish. It's as though she's looking right at us, right? She's looking right into our eyes. And you can see her hand kind of covering the mouth of her child, trying to keep him quiet so that they don't get found out. So we don't know how, how this exactly went down. There, perhaps there were mothers who hid their children and, and they were saved, right? We get those stories in Scripture too sometimes, right? We know the story of Moses when he was saved as a child. So we, we don't know if every single child wasn't. I mean, Bethlehem was a small village, but <clears throat> death and grief is not a matter of amount, right? It's not the kind of thing that we can measure and compare. But this, this is that story. And what's interesting is when Matthew was, was telling this story, he points back to a passage of Scripture in Jeremiah and says, when Jeremiah says Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be consoled because her children are no more, that this fulfills that prophecy. That is a very interesting interpretation of what it means to fulfill prophecy. Jeremiah was talking about the coming exile. Like the people, right, had been in Egypt in slavery, but as Hosea said, out of Egypt I have called my son, meaning out of Egypt I have you know, claimed a people, Israel. But now, through a variety of things, largely due to their own disobedience, the worship of other gods and such, Israel is now facing destruction in the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has come and said, God is sending Babylon to judge you. And... Israel, or actually it's just Judah at this time because the, the kingdom has already dwindled down because the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. So we have this southern kingdom, Judah, and Jeremiah is prophesying and saying, God is sending Babylon to judge you. And they're like, no, 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 no. God protects us from evil. God would never allow Babylon to come here. And Jeremiah said, you misunderstood me. I didn't say that God was allowing Babylon to come here. I was saying God's sending Babylon to come here. Right? It's God's decision. You're being judged. And he says this, that's when he gets to this part about Rachel weeping for her children. Now, the historical Rachel perhaps did weep for her children because they went down into captivity into Egypt. But in the time of Jeremiah, this was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. But as tradition has it, her tomb was there in Bethlehem. And that as the children of Israel, or the, you know, the tribe of Judah, would be taken into captivity into Babylon, they would have had to march past Rachel's tomb. So that 
not only would the historical Rachel have wept for her children as they went into captivity into Egypt, right? This kind of metaphorical Rachel would also weep for her children as they went into exile. Now, historically, that has nothing to do with Jesus or anything that took place there. But history and prophecy are not the same thing. Prophecy is broader than that, and it's also deeper than that. This is why when we read Scripture, Scripture is not reducible to just some historical event, like the the contextually sensitive historical background, which typically is what people in my field put so much emphasis on, is not the, the, the interpretive key that opens up all Scripture to us. When you read Scripture, the Spirit kind of moves through it and speaks to you. The, scripture, the Spirit will move through and speak to us so that when we're reading the text, the, the, there's something new to learn that comes through it. It's, it's more than just history. It's not reducible to just some event in the past. Certainly that's how Matthew's reading it. So when Matthew quotes Hosea and says, out of Egypt I have called my son, he's not historically reading it. He's kind of metaphorically reading it. He's saying that this, what Hosea was talking about the birth of Israel coming out of Egypt. But Matthew is talking about this one ultimate true representative of Israel, the Christ child, who would also come up out of Egypt because he'd been taken there, not for captivity, but for safety. And now we hear Rachel weeping for her children, which is neither the historical Rachel from Genesis, nor a reference to the exile in Babylon, but now just a reference to our own, kind of, or their own, local plight that's represented in the picture. That there's this mother who's suffering, right? That she's, she's, she's in danger, her child is in danger, and she's trying to protect her. I think as Christians, that's how we have to read. It's how their early church fathers read. It's how theologians and priests in the Middle Ages read. That is that scripture can, can speak to our historical story, but it can also speak to us in a contemporary way. It can, it can be a message that helps us get through the day or get through the year. And that's the good news that we have here, that even in the midst of tragedy, there is the Christ child who has been born. There is Emmanuel. There is God who is with us. And this is what the text for today call us to remember. The Old Testament text for today comes from Isaiah. It's just three verses. It's Isaiah chapter uh, 63. And this is what it says. There, Isaiah is having them remember the goodness of God in the past. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to the house of Israel, that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all of their distress, 
It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. This, my friends, is the good news. We remember what God has done for us. We remember what God has done for the people of God. That he, he saw them. He redeemed them. He had pity on them. He became their savior. He lifted them up. He carried them. That's the story of what God has done. And Isaiah tells us this so that we might remember that and hold on to the hope that that's the story that God will do again. But what if things aren't working out? What if you find yourself at some point in your life and you're like, how did I get here? Right. How did things work out this way? This is not what I had planned. This is not what I had hoped for. This is not what I thought was promised to me. In those times, like those mothers in Bethlehem, we can hold on to these texts like Isaiah that tell us to remember what God has done and to hold on to hope that God is faithful and that God will do it again. That somehow, some way, in the end, God will make it right. That's the story. That God is with us. God has not forsaken us. God will never forsake us. Sometimes I hear... <clears throat> Uh, back to the cross just for a second again. Sometimes I hear people talk as though that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. That's heresy. Jesus was not forsaken. The Father never leaves. God is always with us. In fact, the cross tells us just the other, just the opposite of that story. That even at our very worst, even in the very darkest of all things, that God is right in the middle of all of it. God is on the cross, dying for us in the midst of those things. We are not alone. We are never alone. For the Christ child has been born and has become one of us. And now for eternity, God will be identified with humanity. Which is what the writer of Hebrews says. This is our epistle passage for today. It comes from Hebrews chapter Hebrews, that's Matthew. Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to these words. These are beautiful. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things existed, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That is, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he's like us. He's flesh and blood. So Jesus is saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. That is, Jesus is saying, I will proclaim the name of God to other humans. And in the midst of their congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. 
This is Jesus saying he'll put his trust in the Father. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I'm going to read that again. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that Jesus became human, that the divine Son became flesh and blood, so that now all of those of us who are flesh and blood, right? That's us, all of us. That's everyone you've ever known. That's everyone who's ever been. That's everyone who ever will be, right? It's now somehow connected to God through Jesus. And that in his suffering, he knows us. And he claims us. And he calls us brother and sister. And he identifies us with God. Our sins are forgiven. We have been made whole. Because the Christ child has been born and is with us. God, Emmanuel. Those prophecies, coming back to Matthew, are interesting ones. The last one, so the first one was out of Hosea, out of Egypt, I've called my son. The second one was out of Jeremiah, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be consoled because they are no more. The last one is perhaps the most bizarre of the three. They've gone to Nazareth, and it says, this is to fulfill what the prophets have said, that he will be called Nazarene. It's a really challenge uh, for biblical scholars. They don't know quite what to do with that one. Um, Nazareth, the little village he's from, never made the map. Like, you know, when you're, you're looking on your maps and you're like, you're pinching out and you're getting smaller and smaller on your phone. Like, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Mishnah, uh, later Jewish writings. It's never mentioned in the Talmuds. It's like way small town. Like, no one knows where it is. It's like one of the, in, in the John's Gospel, they tell Nathaniel, uh, Philip tells Nathaniel, Behold, we have found the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? Are you sure? Like, has anything ever come from Nazareth? Like, what an out-of-the-way place. It was the ancestral home, though, tradition tells us, of Mary. All right, they didn't grow up in her dad's hometown, Bethlehem, or his dad, excuse me, Jesus' dad's hometown, Bethlehem. He grows up in his mom's hometown of Nazareth. Small town, out of the way, poor carpenter's son, chosen, anointed, 
crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning king. And that's the story of the gospel. For Joseph's dreams, though, I want to to close with this. We, too, should be people of dreams. That we serve a God, as Isaiah told us, who has been faithful and gracious and has provided, right? God became their savior. And he's, he's become our savior too. So we should have dreams for a future that are bright. Like, kind of notwithstanding the past and what has happened to us, the, the struggles that we've had, the, the difficulties that have come our way, the sufferings that we've endured, like Joseph, we should have dreams of, a, of the Spirit of God who can speak to us and give us a future that is bright. A future that can make the wrongs of the past right. I don't know how that works. But I think when God comes, God comes and transforms those things. Makes those things into something other gives us new life. And so, as those who dream, we should also, I believe, identify with dreamers. We should be gracious and generous to those who are looking for a brighter future, for those who are traveling, because we're all on a journey. We're all finding our way home. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.